Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and on this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, our guest is Reverend Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil, or as many call her, Dr. Brenda. Dr. Brenda is a dynamic speaker, author, and trailblazer with over 25 years of experience in the Ministry of Racial, Ethnic, and Gender Reconciliation. She is currently an Associate Professor of Reconciliation Studies in the School of Theology at Seattle Pacific University where she also directs the Reconciliation Studies program. I am honored to have had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Brenda about the recent release of her book, Roadmap to Reconciliation 2.0, as well as to hear her thoughts on racial reconciliation and justice, how we can heal from the impact of racial trauma, and how the collective voices of women can bring change in a world where racial injustice is rampant. I hope you'll find this conversation as rich and powerful as we did. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brenda, for being a guest on the podcast. Would you begin by sharing a little bit about your faith journey and how that has shaped who you are today? Yeah, well, I'm happy to be with you today. And my story starts in Trenton, New Jersey, which is uh, the capital of New Jersey, but a small working class town. And so I'm the second of four kids and we went to church all the time, did not understand that that was supposed to be a transformation of your life. It was more of a religious Mm -hmm. ritual that we did every Sunday. I met someone in high school who played piano at a Pentecostal church. I started going to that church because even though I wasn't a Christian, I believed that they were. There was a liveliness and a sincerity to their faith that captured me. I believed that there was authenticity there, but it was strict. So I thought maybe I'll do that when I'm way older, much older than this. But uh, <laughs> so I go off to college. I'm now 19 years old and I am a sophomore at Rutgers University and a woman on my dormitory floor, an African-American woman. Her name is Margaret. We're still best friends today. Was playing church music on a Wednesday or something like that. And I remember being taken aback by a person who was being religious on like a weekday. Like I thought that Mm -hmm. was a Sunday activity. Long Mm -hmm. story short, I began spending time with her. She began to share her faith with me. I became a Christian because of Margaret at Rutgers University when I was 19. And uh, that began my journey of uh, digging into scripture, meeting other Christians my same age, being discipled by them at Rutgers. We started a ministry on campus after a few of us had visited other groups, mostly white evangelical groups, but there were very few people of color of any. And so culturally it didn't fit for us. So we began making a, a Bible study for ourselves that at the time I was at Rutgers, that became the largest Bible study on campus. And it has something to do with the fervency of our faith and our call to evangelism. So that's how it began. They were the first people who recognized I had a gift to preach or speak publicly, began to nurture it. I went back home to that same small Pentecostal church and they gave me opportunities to preach five minutes, 10 Mm. minutes, and it grew. So I build on that foundation. I tell that story because Once you get educated and go to seminary and get doctorate degrees, everybody takes a little bit of credit for you. But I want to always let Mm. people know that the solid foundation of my faith started in New Jersey with that precious Pentecostal church that modeled integrity, Christian integrity for me every single day. Mm, Beautiful. And tell me a little bit about what you studied 
while you're at Rutgers as well? Yeah, <laughs> I took a long time to find a major. I was one of those kids that eventually by junior year, you know, the dean said, okay, you got to make a decision. <laughs> so <laughs> it started out psychology, I think, and went to English. And I think it was Afro-American studies for a minute. I graduated with a degree in speech pathology and practiced okay. as a speech therapist for three or four years prior to going to seminary. Okay. No kidding. Yeah. I was one of those two who changed my major quite a few times <laughs> and then finally settled on English when I was a sophomore, but waited till your junior year. Nice. <laughs> it was the first, first quarter of my junior year, but the Dean wasn't playing around with me. He was like, you got to pick a major. <laughs> so then you went to seminary. Then what happened after that between then and, and then writing your books? Yeah, well, the beginning of Roadmap for me, I'd say the journey began for me when I became the chaplain's assistant at Occidental College. I was a student now at Fuller Theological Seminary pursuing my Master's of Divinity degree. And the final year of your MDiv, you have to do a field placement. And I knew I didn't want to pastor a church. And so I began asking questions about what else was available to me. And a dear friend and sister on campus, her name is Marta Bennett. Marta Bennett and it said, hey, you should do the one I'm doing. She was a year ahead of me and was about to step down from that internship. And I went over to Occidental College after learning that that was the one she was doing, met Doug Gregg. He said, hey, you can do anything you'd like. I'd love you to be the intern here. And I thought I was going to focus on women in ministry because that was part mm-hmm. of what called me to seminary. That was the hot topic for us in the days that I went to seminary. Could women be called to pastor? Should women be mm-hmm. ordained? And so I I really thought I was going to focus more on the empowerment of women and found myself captured by the fact that when I got to Occidental College or what we called Oxy, uh, mm-hmm. there was a university Bible study fellowship group that actually was kind of the same thing as the chapel. The chaplain and the university program merged together. They were one and the same. And there was about 200 students going to chapel every single week for the large group meeting that was sponsored by InterVarsity, but only two people of color were in it, only two. Mm. One African-American gentleman, young man, who was dating a a white woman in the fellowship, and another Latino brother who uh, came from a working class farming community and kind of wanted to distance himself from what he thought it meant to be Mexican. And those were the only two people of color that was in that room. And I I had a, a flashback to my days at Rutgers and I thought, huh, mm-hmm. so much has changed in the last 10 years or so, but this issue of race and the lack of diversity in the church and real real reconciliation just doesn't seem to happen. What is it about that particular issue that keeps us stuck? And Mm -hmm. that question started me on my journey to reconciliation. So it began at Occidental College. Wonderful. And then so your book Roadmap to Reconciliation 2.0 released this summer as the second edition of the original. How would you say things have changed in our society since the original one was released in 2015? And what are your hopes for the message of the second edition now that it's out in the world? 
Yeah, I I like very much thinking of reconciliation as a journey. I think so many people, especially when I began to consult and speak on Christian colleges and university campuses or do various trainings for Christian nonprofit organizations and such, the question was always, what do we have to do? Like, almost give us a checklist, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, are we there yet? <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah. And I I really want people to understand that reconciliation is a journey. There is no box to check to say, Mm -hmm. I did it. You won't ever be done. We will never be finished. And that includes me. And so my journey began at Oxy has taken 30 years, literally, to keep clarifying what is this process? Because the reason I wrote the book in the first place was that we call people to a value, but we don't explain what it looks like. So we can talk about what it looks like to be reconciled to God. Each of us, regardless of our faith traditions, has some idea if someone said, well, what would it take for me to be reconciled to God? What should I do? We might have our own language for it, but we'd have some way to explain inviting someone into a relationship with Christ. Amen? Right, so yeah. we got an idea of what it looks like to be reconciled vertically to God. But if you ask people, Christians, if you put us in a soundproof booth and said to each one of us, what does it look like to pursue reconciliation with each other? Mm-hmm. Crickets, crickets. Right. And I think what frustrated me was I think it's irresponsible to call people to a value and not have some idea of what you're calling them to actually do. So Mm -hmm. the journey to reconciliation for me began trying to articulate what are the stages of the journey. It's an ongoing spiritual process. That's how I define it. An ongoing spiritual process or journey that involves forgiveness, repentance, and justice that transforms broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. Now, we're not going to see the culmination of that until we're in the kingdom of God, but Mm -hmm. that's what we're pursuing. And there are steps on the journey that help us to know we're going in the right direction, right? So that's how Roadmap, the first book was written, and I still stand by every single word in it. It took blood, sweat, and tears and years of consulting and speaking and training to finally crystallize what does it look like So people have some idea of what the journey entails, but there is no final destination. It's a journey. So because it is a journey, I'm still on the journey. I don't Mm -hmm. stop growing. I don't stop evolving. I don't stop following Christ toward the kingdom. And what I noticed was that we had somehow made the journey too relationally focused. Even though I articulate that it requires forgiveness, repentance, and justice, It seemed as if even when I would talk about it, the examples were too much about being multi-ethnic. And so it was giving the impression, I think, that if we just came together in multi-ethnic, multi-racial fellowships, if our churches looked more diverse, then we were doing reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And that became the new kind of pursuit, I think. People began working very hard to hire certain people to make sure that they didn't look racist. Right. <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna have a, you know, we're gonna have a person of color be the worship leader. We're gonna make sure that Brenda speaks at our conference or whatever. <laughs> right. Know? And that was bugging me. And so I had to look <laughs> at what I was not saying clearly enough. And so the places in 2.0 that have become stronger and bolder 
because it's reflective of me becoming stronger and bolder. And mm -hmm. I think the path of reconciliation required uh, less timidity on my part. And again, mm -hmm. I'm not a timid person. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm not, but I am civil and I have no animosity toward anyone. I'm not trying to hurt anyone. So in my attempt to not be hurtful, I was more careful than I should have been, if that makes any sense. Okay, yeah. So the clarity now is that the fourth stage of the journey is called activation, right? So the first stage mm -hmm. is realization. The second stage is identification. The third phase on the journey of reconciliation is preparation. And the final stage is activation. In the first book, I said, uh, in the 1.0 version, I said that activation is actively working for reconciliation, and I still believe that's true, but I found that people would feel like they were actively working for reconciliation if they tutored kids in the inner city. Now, that's mm -hmm. a wonderful thing, but that's not necessarily a work that leads to reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So... I now have included a clearer definition because of something that happened to me. Can I tell you about it? Yes, please. <laughs> I went to hear Brian Stevenson speak. And for those who don't okay. know, Brian Stevenson wrote a book called Just Mercy. He is the founder and director of the Equal Justice Initiative that defends people who are incarcerated, many of whom are on death row. And a movie was made about his work. He is a friend. I know him personally, but I'm also very moved by how he's given his whole life for the pursuit of justice. I went to hear him speak when he came here to Seattle, Washington, and a friend who was in the the audience who I know well, who always talks about reparations, raised his hand to ask a question. And in that moment, I knew that that question was going to have something to do with reparations. I just mm -hmm. knew it because that's what he talks about. And so when, when Brian Stevenson acknowledged his hand being raised, the young man said, Mr. Stevenson, do you believe in reparations? And I thought to myself, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> so Brian Stevenson said, of course I do, but anyone can write a check. He said, Real reparations would be to repair what is actually broken. Mm. So, he, yes. And then he said, for example, in the United States, African-American people were denied the right to vote. So to repair that, all African-Americans would be given the right to vote on their 18th birthday automatically. He said, in fact, if you were an elderly African-American person, we would come to your house and pick you up and take you to vote. Now, mm. that would repair what was actually broken. Now, I thought that was brilliant. Right. Just brilliant. And that evening, sincerely, and I told you already, I came from a Pentecostal background. So here we go. I was in the car driving home from that event. And I heard a scripture come in my spirit that I had not thought about, and I can't even tell you when. It's in Isaiah, and it says, and you shall be called the repairers of the breach, the restorers of streets to dwell in. And in that moment, I understood that reparations, repairing what is broken, is not some new fad that's happening because people are trying to be, uh, I don't know, uh, woke Right. It's, it's what God has called us to from the very beginning. God has called us to be people who repair the breach. And so I've changed the activation phase now to say activation is repairing broken systems together. Mm -hmm. That's how you know you're doing 
activation, not just because you, you know, care about reconciliation or you have, you eat with chopsticks or you, you have a friend from a different ethnicity. God bless you. Nothing wrong with those things really, but you'll know you're actually doing reconciliation in the active stage when you're actually repairing broken systems, when you're figuring out what's broken, what's keeping people from reaching their full God-given potential. And what can we do together with those people whose lives are being harmed, what can we do with them to repair those systems so all people can thrive? And I think that's stronger, it's clearer, and that's one of the major changes mm-hmm. that I'm really proud of in this second 2.0 book. Wonderful. And that kind of leads me into the next question then about the difference between reconciliation and justice. And so recently there have been some faith leaders who have been pretty vocal about moving away from the phrase racial reconciliation and instead shifting toward the use of the phrase racial justice. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the distinction between those two phrases, as well as what reconciliation means to you. Yeah, I understand the call for a change, and it's because of what I said earlier. I think in our Christian attempt to be nice, we Mm -hmm. water down the concept of reconciliation. So I think in response, people are looking for another way to describe what they want because they're not looking for the kumbaya club. You know, right. They're not they're not looking to sway side to side with each other. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So tired. Amen. And I don't blame them. I'm tired. It's just we're tired of the rhetoric that lets people feel reconciled because they have some cross-cultural skill or they built a house in Mexico. You know, everybody's done. I'm done literally Mm -hmm. done with that. And so I think that that is a reaction to the watered down version of reconciliation that people have, have seen the church model and they're begging for something else. So they're, they're trying to do what I did in the activation phase. They're trying to find another way to language it that gives it more teeth, that makes Mm -hmm. it stronger. And I completely and totally applaud and support that. However, for me, I will not throw away the word reconciliation, though I thought about it because the same angst that other people have, I have too. But when we look at this from a scriptural point of view, that is the theological concept that God has given to us. The Bible says that we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, and it is no less potent because we watered it down than it, you see, than it was intended That term is the theological term. And I believe that we need to redeem the term that was given to us. I think we should, there's a a worship song that says, forgive us, Lord, for the thing we have made it because it's all about you. And I want to say, Lord, forgive us for what we've done to reconciliation, because from the very beginning, you modeled for us that reconciliation is a costly exchange of coming close to where things are broken and where people are hurting and becoming Emmanuel, being present in ways that heals the brokenness. And we've not done that. And we repent of that, but we will reclaim this word. And my goal in my personal life is I will do better. So that's why I changed the book. That's why 2.0 is stronger, because I believe that when you know better, you do better. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to throw the word away, but I do want to redeem what it means and how we use it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we've made the word reconciliation to mean gathering the people together in that watered down way without any real repair or justice, but redeeming that word, because like you said, scripture is very clear what reconciliation means. And it's not just 
gathering people together that look different in the same room or whatever it is that we want to pat ourselves on the back about. Yeah, makes makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that a bit. And then shifting gears a little bit, I actually ended up reading your book this summer alongside of Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands. And if you're familiar with that work or the listeners aren't, his premise is essentially that for racial healing to occur both collectively and individually, that we need to begin with healing our bodies due to the trauma that is held within our physical being. And for me as a trauma-informed counselor, this makes a lot of sense. But I'm curious then from a Christian perspective, how God brings about healing and reconciliation individually and collectively. What are your thoughts on the Holy Spirit's role and work in the midst of bringing about that healing and justice within the body of Christ and in the wider society as well? Well, believe it or not, I just purchased his book. My husband just talked to him maybe two or three days ago. So I think that no what kidding. Has written needs to be, be read. And I am trying to ask myself now, repair, what needs to be repaired? And first of all, we've got to ask what's been broken. And mm-hmm. so another book that I'd like to tell you about is Jennifer Harvey's work, Dear White Christians. I would commend it to anyone. She compares what she calls the reconciliation paradigm to the reparations paradigm and puts them side by side and shows the deficiency in what happened to reconciliation and what she thinks reparations is about. And so I think this, my grandmother's hands helps us with this notion of trauma to understand that what Jennifer Harvey says is true. With the reparations paradigm, it says that different communities have to do different work. So reconciliation is not everybody coming together to the table of brother and sisterhood and making friends. It's honestly saying what got broken in white people? What needs to be repaired so that healing can happen? What's been broken in African-American people's lives and people of color? What's been broken? And Resma is right here. There's been a trauma that has been generational in nature. And so seeing George Floyd strangled to death on television, watching nine minutes of someone begging, calling for their mama as a grown man, begging, please, that something about that has generational sense of uh, fear, trauma that triggers inside that I'm not even aware is present, but it puts everything inside of me on a, a level of fear in the midst of coronavirus, in the midst of a political divisiveness, and then police brutality, it causes a fear in me that does not happen in every other person, say a white person. And I'm not saying this in any kind of divisive way, honestly. I have you just know me well enough to know I don't. There Absolutely, are certain, yeah. There are certain things that when a Latino person hears about immigration and people being raided and children separated from their parents at the border, there is a trauma that that community has got to address so that they can be whole enough that they can continue the journey of reconciliation. So I agree wholeheartedly that we need the healing of the Holy Spirit in those specific places. And so when I say Black Lives Matter, and a white person says to me, don't all eyes matter. It, it hurts at a level that it's hard to describe because when I know the history of lynching, the history of injustice, the history of all of the things that have caused people to not thrive, and then someone minimizes that, I literally have gotten tired of trying to convince someone of that. 
you see? So Mm -hmm. when I am in a place with other people of color who know exactly what that means, it is a healing moment when someone says to me, of course, Mm -hmm. of course. And that happens when people come together. So really that's the other change in this 2.0 book. I've added a new phase called the restoration phase. It wasn't there in the beginning and it hurts me to say, but it was people of color who said to me about the first book, we love you, we love this book, but I don't see myself in this model because right Mm -hmm. now you have a reconciliation phase or an isolation and preservation phase. And sometimes I I feel like I need a break because I am doing reconciliation by going to the grocery store. Sure. I'm reconciling when I go to work. Every day when I get up, I'm doing reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And there doesn't seem to be anything in this model that suggests that I get to pull away from having to be on the diversity team, having to be the person who speaks for the Martin Luther King Jr. thing. I don't want to always be your go-to person for Cinco de Mayo. And I, I see that, I hear that, I feel that myself. So the restoration phase is a cycle now that's in the reconciliation phase that says, when people of color pull away to restore, renew, recharge, reconnect with God and each other, We're not not reconciling. Our healing is a part of our reconciliation work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And then I'm curious with that intergenerational racial trauma and the instinct, as Resma Menachem would say, that there's an instinctive trauma response. As you were talking about too, when you hear somebody say, don't all lives matter, there's a visceral trauma response. Resma then describes it as bracing yourself. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how we can even have conversation with one another, particularly as Christians, without continually re-traumatizing one another when many people in the room are so deeply wounded. Yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think realizing that what we've just said is true that these conversations have different impact on different people. And I can say with sincerity that I think one of the difficult things that I've had to acknowledge is that we've been too focused on centering whiteness, white dominant culture, trying to get white dominant culture to see the sin of racial injustice and kind of, won't you please see this? Won't you please understand this? Won't you please change? Won't you please take this seriously? And I think that too much of my energy and too much energy on behalf of people of color have been spent trying to convince white people to change. So I think that some of that needs to turn to what conversations can people of color have with each other and Mm -hmm. not always be in the position of trying to beg someone to take seriously my reality. Right. Yeah. That's the first step. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why I don't spend a whole lot of time trying to convince somebody. I'm like, okay, (laughs) I think I'm done. I'm going to go talk to somebody for whom I don't have to keep begging you to understand me. And I think that white people need to have conversations with themselves about the reactivity, the fragility, the centering of this makes me feel so bad because I don't want to have to hold space for everybody who feels bad, Mm. you know? Right. And you shouldn't have to. And I shouldn't have to. But I think that... That's the conversation that white dominant culture people need to have with each other. You see, I'm I'm starting to 
believe that there are certain conversations that communities need to have with each other to ask, hey, let's deconstruct this. Because let, let me say this, this thing called racial injustice hurts everybody. This hierarchy that's been developed of certain people being more human, more like God than others, and certain people deserving of certain rights and privileges and freedoms and other people not so much, that has got to stop because truthfully, there's a concept called Ubuntu, which basically says, I am because you are. What happens to you has some impact on what happens to me. And I believe that that's what Bishop Tutu and the movement against apartheid in South Africa was all about, saying you can't dehumanize me without dehumanizing yourself. It goes back and forth. And so I want all of us to understand, regardless of our racial backgrounds, that when we allow this conversation to continue to be as divisive as it is, with an election coming up, get ready, it's going to get worse. Mm. I really, truly believe that all of us have got to understand that this is toxic and it's killing everybody, not just people of color. And that's why I think that people who are from the white dominant culture uh, communities have to say, this is killing us. This is not just about understanding people of color. This is understanding the horrific impact it's having on our humanity as much as it is dehumanizing other people. Hmm. I don't know how to follow that up. I'm just struck by it so much, especially the quote about when you dehumanize others, you dehumanize yourself. That's just something to sit with for a while, I think, especially for white people. So then shifting gears again, kind of going back to your definition from the beginning of reconciliation, and I'll quote it again just because it's so meaningful. You define reconciliation as an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. I'm specifically curious about your thoughts on forgiveness as it relates to reconciliation or justice, just because of the way I feel like the church has used forgiveness almost as as a weapon. So just curious about your thoughts on forgiveness as it relates to reconciliation. Yeah, I had a couple of moments where I had to really grapple with my understanding of forgiveness. Rwanda and the genocide there And having met a dear brother in South Africa, we were both there for a conference and I wanted to talk to him about reconciliation. And he said to me that we're not looking for reconciliation, Brenda, we're first needing to have ceasefire. And so as we continued our conversations and I continued to meet people who told me stories there, one gentleman shared that his entire family, except for a niece and his mother, were slaughtered by their next door neighbor, Hmm. everybody. And that neighbor knew that this gentleman that I'm referring to now lives in the United States. And he begged him to allow him to repent by taking his mother and his niece into his home. Now, I don't know how somebody kills your entire family and then you allow them to become the guardian for your mother. That's just Mm -hmm. almost unthinkable. But the brother that I'm, his name is Celestine. He said, forgiveness is for me. Forgiveness is so that I am not carrying hatred that destroys my life. And so... This man has asked for me to 
demonstrate my forgiveness. He is demonstrating his repentance. And so I forgive because to not do so would be damaging to my own humanity, my soul. And that's what I saw with the same African-American church in the United States when Dylan Ruff came to their church and killed nine people in what we used to call Mother Emmanuel AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And within two or three days, they were at the courthouse saying one after the other, I forgive you. Someone's mother was killed in that church at that Bible study. And they go up and say, I forgive you. And I could not imagine why or how they could do that within days of a mass shooting in a church where everybody let him read a Bible with them. And she sat there for at least an hour with them in Bible study and then killed everybody, but two people and everybody's loved one who was left to grieve went to the court and said out loud, I forgive you. It's a mystery. It is more powerful than I think any of us understand. And it basically says to the perpetrator of harm and hate and destruction, I will not let you define my life. You have definitely had a moment that has changed who I am. But from this point forward, I will not let you define anything else about me. And that's the power, I think, of forgiveness. It takes back our story and it does not allow the person who has perpetrated the violence against us to become the new narrator of our story. Yeah, so I will not let you define my life. That's maybe the definition then that you might give to the word forgiveness, yes. which is very different than often how we hear about it in church. Yeah. But probably more accurate to what Jesus meant. I think so. Hmm. Powerful. We are having a good conversation here. We are. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Lots to think about. All right. So considering then racial justice, what thoughts might you offer to professional women or women in academia who are most of our audience, right, about practicing and integrating justice in our work on a daily basis? Well, I'm really glad you asked because I'm in academia now. I'm a professor. Never mm -hmm. thought that that was coming. I was a consultant to colleges and universities. And so to be a professor has been an interesting and wonderful change. I appreciate having the next generation of Christian leaders, those who are going to be in their various spheres of influence, college educated, well-informed enough to have some impact on the world around them. And so I would say that one, the first thing is that for those of us who are professional women and women in academia, I think we first have to become more well-informed. I am learning as I go how much uh, how do I want to say this? It's a quote. It's sort of like history is written by the victor or the person who mm -hmm. wins gets to tell the story. And so most of us have been educated through a particular lens, a white dominant culture lens that changed the story to benefit the person writing the story. I get it. I'm a writer. And so, you know, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> but I think we should all come to the conclusion that we have been under-informed, if not misinformed. And so I think it becomes our job as educators to educate ourselves. 
I think we've got to choose to read people of color. Resma's book, as you mentioned, My Grandmother's Hands. I think we have to be intentional. And I think we have to be intentional because to make it through the academy, we usually have been taught through a white European male lens. Mm -hmm. And if we want to be other focused, then we're going to have to almost undo what we had to learn to do to pass that PhD bar and get Mm. the seal of approval from the academy, right? Sure, yeah. So I think we almost have to say thank you very much for the PhD. It has opened doors for me and I am grateful. However, your education process has probably caused me to read certain people from particular perspectives. And if I want to broaden that, I'm going to have to make the intentional decision to read outside of the narrow white male European lens that was provided to me as academic. Mm-hmm. Sure. There are yeah. Latin, right. There are Latin American people that we should be reading. There are women of color that we should be reading. There are people who have a global perspective that we should be reading. So I'd say become more informed outside of our genre or outside of the voices that we have been told are credible, because I think there are credible voices that we just have never been introduced to. And the next thing I would say is that we do as people who are in areas of influence and in academia in particular, we do have a responsibility to the generations coming behind us. And I think that our ability to educate them to be better prepared for a world that is demanding something different of them is our new responsibility. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we can educate people to just read certain things, know certain things, and think that they're going to make it in this global, diverse world that they're inheriting. So I think we do them a disservice. So this should not just be a Brenda Salter McNeil's job or the faculty of color's job. This is all Mm -hmm. of our job to educate students with a broad enough understanding of the world that we're not helping them to leave our universities or our colleges with myopic, white-centric views. It's not going to help them in a world that's demanding so much more of their competency. So I think that we should all understand that being culturally competent is no longer an option or something that we do if we happen to be interested in it. The world we're living in demands it of us. Yeah, and I'm thinking even about my grad school experience pursuing my master's in counseling and how we had a class that was called cultural competency in counseling, but it shouldn't just be that class. It should be integrated into every class and it should be every faculty, not just the faculty of color, integrating it in and putting it as a priority. Absolutely. And so demand more. I think that women right now, I sense that the energy around change and advocacy is coming from women globally. And I I wonder if women leaders and academics should start to speak together in one voice and demand different because People pay attention when we speak in mass. People pay attention when it's not just the faculty of color asking for particular things. When everybody pushes in the same direction, we come to a tipping point where the university has got to pay attention to us. So I think that that day of hoping that the faculty of color will speak up, I think that that has to stop. I think that it really is the majority faculty who have to Mm -hmm. say, I want a different experience here. I want my students to be exposed to other schools of thought here. I'd like to have more training so that I can be more competent and do the work that I'm called to do 
in this way with students who come from so many different diverse backgrounds. I want to be a part of that type of institution because if more people ask for it, the administration will need to respond. And that leads me right into my next question then. If you have any thoughts specifically for women in how to grow in using our voices for change, so whether that be individually or even collectively, as you're saying, like if all of the women are demanding something and demanding change. So what thoughts do you have then about for women, how to grow in using our voices? Yeah, I think that there is a unique role that women play in reconciliation. Many women listening to our podcast will will know that around the world, people have already come to understand that if women are educated, that education does not just stay with them. They tend to use their education or economic advancement for the good of the whole community. I think there may be a collaborative nature to the way that women lead and our notion of a communal sense as opposed to more of a competitive sense. I think we need more of that right now. I think we need the collaborative communal energy that women bring, the feminine perhaps represents. And that's not to say that the combative or the competitive is not good. I am competitive. I think that those energies are also necessary. But I think right now there has been so much divisiveness that collaborative energy is very much necessary. And I think many times women embody that. So I think specifically for women, we should grow in our ability to collaborate and to collaborate in ways that we cross the lines with people in allyship. So if there was ever something we need to see right now, how we vote, for whom we vote, what we advocate for, what we speak up about, It's time for a collaborative, unified stance from women who basically say we could disagree politically, we could disagree, you know, we could come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, but these kinds of things are abhorrent. And they're abhorrent whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white, whether you speak English or another language, whether you were born in this country or another, these things are abhorrent. Let me give an example. People having their children as infants taken away from them at the border as some sort of a retribution for coming into the country illegally. But now there's no way for the child to be reunited with their parent because they weren't tracked and the infant was too young to even be able to recognize his or her parent if they were reunited. Now, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine as a mother. No. I just can't imagine. Not at all. Every woman across this country, and in and if people are listening to this podcast around the world, should be screaming out about that. Mm-hmm. This is true. I was in the grocery store and my back was turned, and my daughter Mia, who was maybe three or four at the time, somehow saw something that caught her attention and she walked away from me and was out of my sight. When I turned back around and couldn't see my daughter. I panicked. I found her just one row away from me looking at something. But for the second or two that I couldn't find her, I was beside myself yelling in this grocery store her name at the top of my lungs because I couldn't imagine that my baby was lost. Mm-hmm. Every woman who hears this podcast should put herself in that exact same position when we listen to the news and say to ourselves, if that was my child, what would I do? And then I think that that's the energy that will bring transformation if women speak in a unified voice against that type of injustice. 
Yeah, which makes me think of in Portland, even right now, how they had the women were coming and standing in front. They called it the wall of moms, right? And so, you know, these women that that's exactly what they were doing. They were taking their empathy and using it to raise their voices, raise their voices with their bodies. Amen. Amen. So I stand with Latino women and I stand not because I know everything about immigration. I just know that whatever we figure out about immigration, nobody should have their baby taken from them with no hope of ever having her return. That should not be. And we should all say to Nikki Haley and everybody else who did it, shame on you. Find those children, get them back to their parents. We'll work on immigration next. But right now you reunite every single one of those children that was taken from their mothers because nobody needs to have that happen to them. It's inhumane. And mothers Mm -hmm. feel that. So thank God for the wall of moms. Every time I see them standing together, my heart sings because that's what women do. And I believe that energy could heal the world. I really, really do. So I hope the women listening to this podcast will be inspired to begin to step up and ally, be allies with each other. Yeah. So then kind of wrapping up, You haven't mentioned it yet, but you have another book coming out soon entitled Becoming Brave. And I've seen the trailer on social media and it's absolutely captivating. Can you share a little bit about how that book came to be and when we can anticipate its launch into the world? Yeah. Well, I've already said that reconciliation is a journey and I'm on it. I continue to be on the journey. I'm grateful that that's who I am. It's not a bragging thing at all. I just, I keep learning and I'm thankful because none of us knows it all. None of us has it all figured out. And so my truth is that I did temper my words so that white evangelicals would be able to hear the message of reconciliation, not as anything that I was trying to push as an agenda or having some hidden motive politically. I don't. So it wasn't out of fear or being shy that I pulled back. It was out of respect for my audience, if that makes Mm -hmm. any sense. Yeah, it does. But I have watched my audience be complicit with all kinds of injustice and somehow justify that as Christian. And I believe that that required me kind of becoming more brave to Mm -hmm. say this nice, nice approach is not helpful because if the Bible is true, the truth makes us free. And me not telling the truth or softening it does not do anybody any good. And so Mm -hmm. Becoming Brave is a story based in the book of Esther, who, like the women listening to this podcast, probably are not looking for any social, political activism to get involved in, but the (laughs) world. (laughs) But the world around Esther and the world around us is knocking at our door. And before we know it, we find Mordecai saying that you have got to say something. You have got to speak up about what's happening because people's lives are being destroyed. So it's taken me more time than I can even tell you to write this book. I thought it was going to be easy. It was the hardest one yet because it came out of the very core of my own soul. I tell my own evolution of becoming brave. I interweave that with the story of Esther, and I think it might be one of the best things I've ever written. And when can we expect it? Because we're looking forward to it. August 18th. I feel like 
That's right August, around the corner. <laughs> right around the corner. So I think of her as a girl and I feel like it's been a labor of love. So anybody who knows me really well knows that this was not just a book I wrote. This feels like a book I birthed. And mm. so I am grateful that she will be in the earth, but it was a long labor. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to read it. Well, finally, then we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote or scripture or song or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? And can you share a little bit about why it resonates with you at this time? Yeah, there is a song. It's a gospel song and it has this refrain. And this morning as I was walking, preparing myself for this podcast, I could hear it in my heart. And it says, there's an army rising up. There's an army rising up. There's an army rising up to break every chain, to break every chain. And then it goes on to say, I hear the chains falling. And so I believe that there is an army of God's people rising up. And I'm grateful because for me to become brave, sometimes it feels like the armies against us are stacked way deeper than we are. But I believe that God would say to us that there are more with us than are against us that there are people who sincerely want to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. And so my sister, I see an army rising up and by faith, I hear chains falling and that gives me hope to keep going forward. That's a beautiful image and powerful image to end on. So thank you so much, Dr. Brenda, for such a rich conversation It's been really meaningful to me personally, and I hope it will be as well for our audience. So thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.